from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that traverses the dark landscape between splatterpunk and transgressive. His stories explore the span of time as well as the seedy underbelly of the taboo. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novel, A Fine Evening in Hell, as well as his new novel, Ex Boogeyman. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Christopher Triana. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate you joining me. I know A Fine Evening in Hell is not your most recent work, but when I was looking through your bibliography, it jumped out at me for some reason, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. So thank you. I'm looking forward to getting into the story as well as hearing about your newest projects. Okay. Sounds good. So... The book is aptly named A Fine Evening in Hell because of the way that the consequences of a marital indiscretion spiral out of control. The three main characters, Max, Bastion, and Heather, all seemingly had their own themes. Max, bad decisions, Bastion, bad luck, and Heather, naivete. So what would you say is the common characteristic of all three of them that keeps the story progressing from bad to worse? Um, I would say it's desperation. Max and Bastion are desperate to get away with the thing that they've done. They've been involved in this crime and they're desperate to get to freedom and not just from the police, but from the other criminals that are after them. Heather begins with just being desperate for some kind of joy in her life because she's going through a divorce and, you know, she's love starved. So she's having a little rendezvous with a younger man that she met on a dating app. And then her greater desperation comes when she accidentally gets involved with these criminals and is forced to drive them across state lines. And so her desperation then changes to wanting to get home so she can be with her little boy and doing anything it takes to get home to him. Well, where did the concept for the story come from? Um, well, whenever you're writing something, it can be like a combination of different things, stuff that you witnessed in reality, stuff that you read about in the news. But I think the real impetus for it for me was two things. The book starts with Heather and Evan having sex in their car in an abandoned parking lot. That's something that a lot of people have done. Uh, <laughs> you know, I certainly myself have done the sex in the car, you know. And there's something that's very vulnerable about that, you know, 
you're never more vulnerable than when you're either having sex or if you're in the bathroom, you know, like that's when you're at your most vulnerable. So that vulnerability creates a sense of fear and danger. And for a lot of people, I think that's what heightens the excitement of something like that. But it works well to heighten the sense of fear and danger in a story as well. So the other thing that kind of inspired it is I was just thinking to myself, you know, wanting to write a book about being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I just thought, you know, what if some criminals were hiding somewhere and someone pulled up totally unknowing of this and the criminals mistook them for other bad people that were after them and where would it go from there? Mm -hmm. And so that was really where it all kind of began. And then as I wrote it, a lot of times in my books, things just increase and increase and the tension builds and builds and the crazy things that happen get more and more extreme. So they kind of carried on from there. Gotcha. Well, Bastion is a character that's easy to like, but Max is kind of an anti-hero. It's hard to like him because he does so much bad shit, but it's hard to hate him because he's just trying to hit a big score so he can start his life over. Right. So I was curious to know, do you have experience with anyone that through the commission of a crime has ended up with a record which put them in the unfortunate position trying to live a straight life, but are unable to obtain gainful employment. Mm. I have known some people in the sense of when I was working a day job and it was my position to hire people. So I did meet some people that had some criminal past. But as far as like on a personal level, I do know, well, I should say I used to know a few people that ended up going to prison. But I don't think that they necessarily had difficulty in being hired places. But at the same time, the experience of being in prison forever changed them and made it difficult for them just to have a normal life, really. Mm. And oddly enough, most of the people that I know who ended up going to prison were women. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it just it had this like terrible, terrible effect on them. They were never the same after prison. Yeah, you do a really good job with kind of explaining the mindset of Bastion and Max. I'm trying to put into perspective being in prison, you're told when to go to sleep, when to wake up, when to go to work, when to eat, uh, when to use the bathroom almost. And then on top of that, you're walking around on eggshells. And I do know from personal, well, not personal experience, but people that I know that have worked as correction officers is like, they've told me, yeah, we, we don't run that place. Like <laughs> the, the inmates run the asylum basically. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, I don't know. How did you develop that perspective that you inserted into the story? Well, I love reading crime fiction, uh, you know, like uh, Jim Thompson and, and a lot of the old noir stuff, gritty crime novels like, you know, Ted Lewis and Lawrence Block and, you know, different books like that. And so that gave me some insight over the years. But when it came to actually writing crime novels myself, I read books like by people that were actually reformed criminals like Edward Bunker and other authors like that. And I read a lot of interviews about, you know, a lot of articles, I should say, about prison and particularly with another book of mine that I wrote after A Fine Evening in Hell, which is yet to be announced or released, but it's a book that takes place in a women's prison. And so I had to do extensive research because I wanted it to be as authentic as possible. You know, how the prisons are run, the differences between public prisons and privately owned prisons, mm -hmm. the differences between women's prisons and men's prisons, which are many, 
So yeah, it's really about digging into it and hearing other people's firsthand accounts that give you that kind of look into what that life is really like. So one of the most important parts of a horror story is a well-constructed villain. And I like very psychologically complex villains, especially ones that live by a code. Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men is a great example mm -hmm. as far as I'm oh, yeah. concerned. So, yeah, one of my favorite uh, villain characters ever. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So your villain in the story has a code, but also has cobbled together his own dark philosophy from a few different sources. And uh, if it's all right with you, I wanted to read a short passage from the book where the villain Willem is speaking to someone that narked him out. Mm -hmm. That'd yeah. be all right with you? All right. Absolutely. All right. Listeners at home. This is a scene from the book where the villain Willem has gotten the drop on a man that narked him out, which resulted in Willem doing 10 years in prison. And the guy that narked him out just got off scot-free. So this is I feel like I'm quoting from the Bible. This is page 155, <laughs> verse 14. <laughs> I did a lot of reading in those years, Willem told Ray. Not much else to do. At first, I read a lot of fiction for escapism, but then I moved on to philosophy, Nietzsche, Kant, Descartes, Sartre, and those guys. And I learned about the illusions of human life, the vanity of its perceived importance. We want there to be more to it than eating, fucking, reproducing, shitting, and dying. But we're really just slowly rotting flesh, Ray. Once I accepted that, I was free. Even though I was in the joint, I learned to limit my relationship with the world around me, the fucking nightmare world of prison life, and live instead in the world of my own mind. Solipsism is the only truth, Ray. The realization that the self is the only thing that can be known and trusted. But I wouldn't expect you to understand that. What you will come to understand here shortly is that there is no point to you or anybody. And in the end, we're all truly alone, just as we've always been. Fuck, man. <laughs> where, Thanks. where did Willem come from? <laughs> <laughs> well, that speech there, as the character mentions, it's kind of taken from, you know, Sartre and a lot of the existential philosophers that I've enjoyed reading. But the character of Willem, he's like a Nazi skinhead. And the thing is, is when you write a villainous character, I always liked him to be people before they're villains, mm -hmm. even if they're a wretched, horrible person like Willem is. And that's not just for, you know, his bigotry. It's also for the horrible things he does. But even when you're constructing a villain, you want them to be a believable human being. You want them to have other interests and other beliefs and other things that they do other than being a villain. Because if you just stick to that villain part, then you end up with this kind of cliche caricature of a bad guy, like Dr. Claw and Inspector Gadget just petting <laughs> his cat and going, I'll get you next time, you know, and it becomes cheesy like that. Yeah, the character of Chunkin, you know, Willem, you explain his backstory, his belief system, kind of a backstory involving his involvement with Ray and even with Max. But Chunkin, you don't really know who he is. And mm. he was really disturbing because he was weak. And even with a gun, he was not that much of a threat. Mm -hmm. But he was this cold-blooded rapist pervert. Yeah. So yeah. I was curious to know a little bit more about him. If he had a backstory in the book, what would it be? 
Um, well, to me, his whole thing is his relationship with Willem, which is doubly interesting because, you know, Willem is this white supremacist and Shogun is Chinese, but Willem needed someone to do computer work for him to help in his criminal enterprise. And so he brought Shogun along and Shogun, he has these, you know, sexual perversions that he's able to get fulfilled by working with Willem because they are involved in sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. So if he had a backstory, um, well, here's the other thing is that Willem is much older than Chogan. Chogan's, you know, a young man, early 20s, you know. And so it's kind of that, you know, like mentorship where Willem is kind of using him to get what he needs. But Chogan's also kind of learning from Willem that some of the criminal stuff that they can do and get away with. So he's kind of roped into that by his own sexual deviancy and his need to do the horrible things that he does. And so he ends up working for Willem. But yeah, that is kind of the extent of the character. I don't have that rich of a background for him. He's just kind of a mysterious weirdo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Aptly put, yeah. 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 There was a true crime story that interested me that was somewhat like that too, where it was this serial killer, this rapist serial killer duo of these two men. I I wish I had looked it up beforehand uh, so I could remember the names, but... It was these two guys that were kidnapping, raping, and then murdering and burying these women on this like rural farm. And it was like that, where the one guy was younger and just kind of got led by this older guy who had already been killing people, you know? And so it's interesting when you find that kind of dynamic in a true crime story or in a fiction crime story of someone teaching a pupil, like a criminal teacher and pupil relationship. Yeah. And... Willem is using him because of his digital skills. I'm going to try mm-hmm. not to get too far into the spoilers, but digital skills. But, you know, Chonkin is also, in a sense, using Willem because mm-hmm. he's got this perverse sexual appetite, but he's not big. He's not violent. Right. He's not connected, you know. So in a sense, he's just... I mean, obviously he's guilty, but he's just as guilty of using someone as Willem is of using Mm -hmm. him. Absolutely. Yeah, they're both getting what they want out of this relationship that they have. Yeah, they're both benefiting from it. But I would like to mention that they're probably the worst villains of the book, but there are other villains throughout the book as well. And Willem and Shogun don't really show up until the third act. Hmm. But at the same time, I wanted to make them really impactful villains even in the short amount of time that the reader gets with them so i'm glad that they made an impression on you no yeah absolutely yeah you're right i'm kind of letting willem outshine all the other villains i mean definitely ray is uh, right yeah (laughs) he's he's probably one of the worst considering his occupation so right yeah it's not really spoil anything because he shows up early but uh yeah ray is a crooked cop so Mm -hmm. yeah he's a pretty bad guy as well Yeah, criminals at least are honest about who they are. (laughs) Right. right. Well, the really terrifying element was the young girls on the compound that were not only being pimped out, but also developed a sort of Stockholm syndrome from being psychologically terrorized. Right. So what made that really scary for me was the fact that human trafficking and sex slavery is a real thing. So I was curious, which real world element do you write about, either you have written about or you write about in a few different books that you find the most disturbing and why? 
Yeah, I think that that's extremely disturbing. The Stockholm syndrome that can come with being imprisoned and being forced to do things, particularly like, you know, depraved sex acts. So it's very disturbing, you know, to think of that kind of human slavery happening. But I'm often disturbed by a variety of different things, and that usually leads me to write about them. Like we mentioned prison earlier, I was really disturbed by an article I read about private prisons, and it led me to want to write the book that I've just recently finished working on. When I wrote a book called Toxic Love, I was really fascinated by the occupation of crime scene cleanup crew Hmm. and how that works, how these guys or, or girls are just on call all the time, you know, because you never know when the police are going to need some bloody crime scene to be cleaned up. Mm -hmm. So they're just on call 24 hours a day. They get a call. If they want to get paid, they have to get up and they have to go and they clean up blood and brains and feces and all sorts of horrible things. (laughs) And that's their full time job. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's insane. Mm -hmm. I got to learn everything I can about this so I can write a book about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if there's one thing in particular that I find extremely disturbing. There's so many things to find disturbing in life. And it's true what they say. And that fact is quite often stranger than fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I've talked to a few different authors that write in the splatterpunk genre or just write extreme in general. And uh, they've Mm -hmm. talked about sometimes you do run into some cancel culture as far as like people complaining on Amazon or whatever, what have you. So do you feel like there should be anything taboo in literature? And if so, what would you say? I don't. I don't think so. Um, I think it's all about how it's handled. Mm-hmm. I think it's all context, you know. And here's a great example. As many people say that, you know, kids are off limits mm-hmm. in horror or anything like that. Like you can't do bad things to kids. It's just too taboo. And I said, well, then by that logic, we wouldn't have Lolita by mm-hmm. Vladimir Nabokov, which is to me and to many others, one of the finest novels ever written. Mm. It might even be my favorite book because it's so beautifully written and it's so genius. But it's written from the point of view of a pedophile, mm. you know? So some people think that that kind of thing should be taboo. And I'm like, fuck you. It's all context. You know, it's all how the story is handled and how it's done. And yeah, I've definitely worked in taboos because although I've written splatterpunk and extreme horror, I like to think of the majority of my stuff as transgressive horror fiction. Fine Evening in Hell, you know, the book we've been talking about, that's not extreme horror. It's not splatterpunk. It's not a lot of blood and guts. But the content is extremely dark. The nature of the story is very dark. And like what happens in a lot of extreme horror books, the intensity of the evil gets stronger. It gets exponentially worse as the story goes on. So I don't know if that fully answered the question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My next question was going to be that because that book stood out for me, I was going to ask you if there was an element that you think is unique to this book that you haven't explored in other books. And maybe it's not that. Maybe it's as you just described, it was transgressive. I'm drawn to don't get me wrong. I love splatterpunk and, you know, everything. But I like psychological horror and especially if it's extremely transgressive. Right. So right. So do you have other books that you would kind of put in that same vein? Oh, yeah. My most popular book is called Gone to See the Riverman. It's uh, like an international horror sensation. I'm really wowed by how well that book has done for me. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely transgressive. Definitely. And it's funny, like you mentioned people complaining online or things 
considered taboo and people being offended. And we live in this time where everyone is so easily offended and people, I think, even want to be offended. They want something to be able to get on their soapbox about and do their virtue signaling. You know, I wrote a book called They All Died Screaming, and that book deals heavily with the fact that women have suffered at the hands of men for all time. Mm -hmm. And so in the story, we have these two storylines that kind of converge, and you have a lot of male characters being terrible to female characters. That's kind of the nature of the story. So I've gotten different reviews, and it's hilarious because it just shows you can't please everybody. <laughs> I had a, a female reviewer complain that the book was offensive to women, that it was nothing but men being terrible to women throughout the whole book, and how it was misogynistic and sexist and all that. And then I had another review that was from a man saying that it was too woke because the book just portrayed men as all bad and just treated women <laughs> bad and that not all men are like that and it was offensive uh, to men so it's like you know you, you're going damned you're gonna, if you do damned if you don't yeah, yeah and it's like well the thing that neither of them mentioned is the women in the main story are all horrible too basically they all die screaming is an apocalypse story but what I wanted is like, you know, you see these apocalypse movies and stuff, zombie movies, whatever it is. And there's always this group of heroes that you stick with that are trying to survive. And I was like, well, what if the main group in my story was a bunch of scumbags that if they were like, you know, drunks and prostitutes and like just the dregs of society. And that was the whole impetus for the story. So all the characters are deeply flawed. But yeah, you can't please everybody and you shouldn't try to. And you certainly shouldn't limit yourself as a writer based on fear that somebody is going to get their panties in a bunch over something, you know, because fuck them. You know, <laughs> if they don't like it, don't read the fucking book. Don't read me. If you had such a problem with what I write, you know, you don't go fuck yourself. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, it's one thing to come across a post on social media or I don't know, maybe you come across something on some streaming platform, but reading a book is an active process. <laughs> you have to <laughs> obtain the book, place it in your lap, and then focus very attentively. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, it kind of reminds me of, I had a Mitch Horowitz on the show and he was talking about how there is a perverse pleasure in complaining and ruminating and repeating resentments you have over in your head over and over again, kind of the same rush you get from watching a horror movie or mm -hmm. uh, riding a roller coaster. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I think a lot of people with the complaining, too, is that. I think it makes them feel like they're better than other people, mm -hmm. that they're on this higher level because they realize what's wrong and they're pointing it out. And they're like, I stand for this and that. And it's like, no one gives a shit what you stand for. This is why I'm not on Twitter much, because this is everyone on Twitter mm -hmm. just trying to be like, I know best. I'm better than other people. And I this and I that. Yeah, no, <laughs> I mean. To me, there's like the big three. There's Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And mm -hmm. Facebook, I stay off of because to me, it's just a place to, you know, send pictures of your grandkids back and forth. I mean, I know there's, <laughs> a, I know there's a lot of bookish people on Facebook, but those same people are on Instagram as well, right, from my right. experience. And Twitter, yeah, Twitter, I mean, even if it wasn't a bunch of political infighting the mm -hmm. uh the way that interface is it's just chaos yeah like, it is. it's just i can't make sense of it it makes my brain hurt like i'm kind of a minimalist so i like everything you know just bare bones straightforward and that's just like a mess <laughs> it really is i feel the exact same way 
I can never figure out who said what first and what order mm-hmm. all these comments are in. And it's almost always negative shit. You know, like with Instagram, it's like, hey, look at pictures of my puppies. With TikTok, it's like, hey, I'm dancing to a song I like. Mm-hmm. And then Twitter, it's just like, fuck you, I'm right, and mm-hmm. I stand for this, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I absolutely hate it. It's like, it's so negative. It's so vile. Yeah. And now it's only gotten worse with, you know, that rich cocksucker, Elon Musk, took it over and he's just tanking it, which is really funny to me. I'm glad that he's that he's ruining something that he spent so much money on. Yeah. Uh, but now it's only worse. It's only worse than, than ever. So, yeah, you won't find me on there a lot. <laughs> well, circling back to A Fine Evening in Hell, who was your favorite character to write? Oh, I enjoyed writing them all, really. I felt Who is for... your favorite child? No, I'm just playing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really, well, I mean, like you said, there are a mixture of different characters. You know, Heather is kind of the outsider in all of this because all the other characters are criminals and she's just a, a regular person. Uh, so I felt for her being thrown into this whirlwind and I cared about her as a character. But then I also cared about Bastion, even though he's one of the criminals. Like you said, he's just had a hard lot in life mm-hmm. and he's trying to do what's right. And to an extent, Max is too, but Max is a little more ruthless when it comes to him getting what he wants and doing whatever it takes. Even if he doesn't want to necessarily do it, he'll hurt someone if it means that he gets away with the crime that he's trying to commit. You know, he's like a no witnesses kind of guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like them all for different reasons. And because them being so different, they all pose different challenges to me as a writer. And I had to try to give them all their own individual voice. You know, I had Max being a white man. Bastion being a black man and Heather being a white woman. So there's these very different perspectives and very different backgrounds that they all came from. Mm-hmm. Well, based on the fact that I loved A Fine Evening in Hell, I was going to ask which of your books you would recommend that I read next. But it sounds like what was the book we were talking about earlier that you said was transgressive as well? Oh, uh, Gone to See the River. Man. Gone to See the River. Man. Yeah. 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 Is that? Yeah. That one has been universally my most popular by far. That one is very transgressive in its content. It's very different from Fine Evening in Hell, though. Fine Evening in Hell, although it definitely becomes horror as it progresses, it's really a crime novel, mm. like as it starts off. Uh, but it's a gritty crime novel. And that's something I would like some of my readers to understand, because I have plenty of readers that love my horror stuff, but are be like, well, I'm not really into crime fiction. And I'm like, well, trust me, this becomes horror. You know, much like Jack Ketchum's stuff, some of it like had a crime fiction feel and became horror as a story progressed, like uh, his book called The Lost. That's like that. Or Jim Thompson, who I mentioned before, like The Getaway. A lot of people may be familiar with The Getaway movie, the Steve McQueen movie, but the book is much darker than the movie is. And the movie's great, but the book is much darker and gross and fucked up. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I highly recommend that a lot of horror fans try to read some of those types of crime books, including mine. But if you really like that element, that crime meets horror element, I have another book called And the Devil Cried. The protagonist is one of the most evil characters I've ever written. Just a total sociopath, just awful in every way. And he was a lot of fun for me to write because I was consistently thinking, okay, what's the most horrible thing I could think of for a person to do? And then I'd put that in there, you know? <laughs> so yeah, if you're looking for that kind of crime horror hybrid, I would say to go with And the Devil Cried. But if you're looking for extremely transgressive and like a just a dreadful horror story, Gone to See the River Man would be the one. Okay. I like them both, though. So. All right. <laughs> well, your newest work is A Cold Place for Dying, correct? 
Uh, well, no, uh, Cold Place for Dying is a novella, but it was released previously oh. by Thunderstorm Books in a limited run in paperback and hardback. And so once that sold out, you know, it's been you know about a year now. And so I put it out myself. I re-released it because the Thunderstorm one was limited and it was all signed editions and they're all sold out. So that's actually a re-release. But now it's widely available. You can get it everywhere now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that kind of stuff. My newest book is a novel called Ex Boogeyman, and it's kind of an homage to the old slasher movies of the 1980s that I grew up on and love so much. So that's my newest one, and that's a full-on horror novel. Okay. And can you kind of, obviously no spoilers, but go a little bit more in depth, kind of sure, wet sure. our appetite a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Well, the book takes place in 2010, because if it took place in 2022, the characters would just be too old to do some of the stuff that they do. Because basically, it's about kind of like a Robert England type of guy. It's this character named Jonathan Zane. And he very famously played the villain in these movies called Lunatic. And they ended up making like 15 of these movies, Lunatics 1, 2, 3, and 4, all these different sequels during the 1980s and the early 90s. And he was super popular, just like Freddy Krueger was extremely popular in the 80s. Like, you know, he was on, you know, magazine coverage, he was on MTV, had his own 976 hotline where you could call and stuff. But now here it is 2010, and he was typecast. He was just always played Nicky and never really got other roles. And, you know, they haven't made a lunatic movie in a long time. And so he's kind of doing the horror con circuit where he signs autographs, and he's still very popular with the horror fans. But that's really all he's got. Like, even his personal life is bad. Like, his wife left him, his kids hate him. Mm. He's, you know, just not had a good life. But it's a lot of it's his own doing. He's made a lot of bad decisions. But anyway, he finds out that a remake of Lunatic is being made. And he gets excited because he hasn't had work in a while and he's hoping to be involved in it. But the studio doesn't want him involved in it because the later sequels ended up being really campy. And they're trying to move away from that camp and go back to like making it actually scary. And the fact that Lunatic was the one thing in Jonathan's life that went right, it really pisses him off that he's not going to be involved in the new one. And he slowly starts to unravel and starts to become the Nikki character, the killer that he played in the Lunatic series. And he goes after the people that are making the remake in the yeah. style of as if he himself was that slasher. Nice. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's called X Boogeyman. He was like a former slasher star and now he's washed up. Yeah. That's a pretty unique premise there. I like that. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's the new one. I'm hoping people like it. So. Yeah. Well, you have a collaborative effort with Aaron Beauregard and Daniel Volpe called The Obituaries, which just released issue number three, I believe, right? Yes. Issue number three. I mean, I'm not sure when this will air, but issue number three is available for pre-order at the time of our recording this. And it's our holiday special. So it's three stories that are all you know, Christmas horror stories. Awesome. And are you doing the same? I believe you've done it with the previous two where you have like a limited edition. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Every issue is a limited run. This one's limited to 300 copies. And yeah, they're signed by all the authors and signed and numbered. That's right. You don't even release this in Amazon. It's all from the website. No. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Forgot yeah. We that. wanted it. We wanted it that way because this is kind of what Aaron likes to call horror without boundaries. <laughs> so, you know, because we have illustrations and cover art by uh, Nick Justice and uh, Barry McLean Jr. and these other guys from Blue Juice Comics that did amazing artwork. So we're like, we don't want to have to worry about content of what we write. 
or the content of our covers. We can be as graphic and gruesome as we want mm -hmm. because we're not putting it on Amazon or anywhere else. We're selling yeah. it ourselves. So talk about breaking taboos. <laughs> like these stories are really out there with their intensity. And yeah, we've been having a lot of fun and a lot of success with it. People really like it. Yeah, I like that. You guys have set up your own pirate ship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how did you come to collaborate with Beauregard and Volpe? Uh, well, I met both of them at AuthorCon earlier this year. I knew of them, of course. We knew of each other, but we had never met in person. And, and so we met and, and we got along really well. And Beauregard in particular, he lives not too far away from me. And so, yeah, we became fast friends and started hanging out and doing stuff. And, you know, we talked about collaborating and, you know, we wanted to do something that was kind of unique, you know, and again, something that we could just release ourselves and not have any kind of censorship on. And we thought it would be cool to do something like this where it was, you know, just for the fans and it was a signed numbered edition and, you know, it came with like a bookmark and a magnet and some fun stuff. And so we got together and decided to do it and named it the obituaries and it did extremely well the first issue and so we decided to do a halloween issue and now a christmas issue and we have more planned for 2023 awesome so where are you guys in relation to each other geographically does it have to be like a planned out thing when you do those signings that i've seen videos of Yes. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, we usually meet here because I live kind of between the other two guys. Like I live in Connecticut, Dan lives in New York, and Aaron lives in Rhode Island. Okay. So it's kind of a in-between point. So I'm the lucky one who doesn't have to nice. drive anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I usually, I'll pay for the pizza, you know? Sweet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a little easier for me and Aaron because we both write full-time, but Dan has a full-time job on top of being a writer and he also has a family. So we try to you know, make it as easy for Dan as we can uh, as far as scheduling. Yeah. yeah. Well, since you are obviously a very prolific writer, how much time in any given week do you spend on writing? I write every day. I'm lucky enough in my life at this point where I can sustain myself writing full-time. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a pesky day job that gets in the way anymore. But I'm very dedicated to what I do and very focused on it. So I do write every single day. Usually, you know, I'll start in the morning, you know, around nine or 10 o'clock, and I'll write probably till about five or six. It depends on how the day is going. You know, I take breaks in between, but most of my day I spend up in my office mm -hmm. working. And if I'm not writing something new, I'm editing something or I'm you know, working on putting together one of these obituaries issues or something like that. Hmm. So it's like, it's a full-time job. So is your full-time job with regard to writing like fiction or do you have other avenues that you write in? Uh, mostly it's fiction, but I do write magazine articles as well. Hmm. Uh, I do articles for Backwoods Survival Guide magazine, which is a magazine you can find anywhere. You can walk into CVS and get it. And then I also do articles. I started doing them recently uh, for Preppers magazine as well. And uh, both of these magazines are focused on, you know, like uh, survival in the wilderness mm -hmm. and also do it yourself projects. Like I wrote an article about, you know, how to build your own axe throwing target and, you know, things like that, you know, survival stuff, man stuff, nice tools, whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I think one of the pictures I saw of you was clean shaven. So when I went to your Instagram, I was like, is this the same guy? <laughs> yeah. 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 The beard I started, uh, actually the beard just celebrated its one year anniversary. Nice. I started growing it November of last year and it was going to be a winter beard, but then I ended up 
just liking it and the ladies love it. So, so I kept it. Yeah. If you're going to throw an ax, you've got to have the beard. <laughs> you do. You do. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to be off balance. I know. It's not going to work. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, where is the strangest place you have ever gotten a story idea? Yeah. Um, I get them. It's this kind of thing, like when you're a writer is that it's always kind of churning in your brain, even if it's just in the background, kind of like a song that's stuck in your head. You're always thinking about what you're working on and you're always observing and taking things in for potential stories. Um, but I don't know if there's a particular place that was the weirdest place to come up with one, because like I said, it's always on the mind. Always. Okay. Well, you spoke about this earlier and I'm trying to remember what it was you said as far as whether you're an outliner or a pantser. I love that term, pantser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you're just yanking someone's pants down. You know, like, I pantsed yeah. you, got you. <laughs> but you alluded to it earlier, and I can't remember what it was you said. But anyway, yeah. Are you an outliner or a pantser? Um, I'm kind of a combination of the two. I do keep a file like on hand of like ideas and plot points and character names. So there is that outline, but I don't do a complete outline, like synopsis from start to finish of everything that's going to happen. Because as I write, the story changes, the characters change, I come up with new ideas, new twists. And so sometimes I'll be writing a story without a clear idea of what exactly the ending is going to be. You know, but I have a general idea of what the vibe of the book is going to be and certain plot points, things that need to happen or are going to happen throughout the course of the story. So I do have a loose outline, okay. but I'm very flexible with it and improvise a lot and then go back and do rewrites. And sometimes I'll completely change things. And, you know, some of my books have alternate endings, you know, that have been, that <laughs> have just a been changed. Cut? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes there'll be a director's cut. Yeah. Well, do you do anything outside of reading that you feel makes you a better writer and you know that could be throwing axes i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> um maybe throwing axes i don't know but i think that just the habit of doing it every day and working on it every day is you know very beneficial but you know i'm just obsessed with storytelling and fiction and so that extends to movies as well i love movies i have a huge movie collection mm -hmm. i love watching movies and also, I get a lot of inspiration from music. I listen to a lot of instrumental music. And sometimes when I, you know, in the evening, I'll put on music and I'm one of those people that just sits and listens to the music. I don't just have it on while I'm doing other things. Mm -hmm. I really sit and absorb it. And I get a lot of my best ideas while listening to music like that. You know, with I have the lights on low and just, you know, kind of let images come into my mind like a movie is playing in my mind. Mm -hmm. So based on when I was asking you about where you get your story ideas from or where's the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea from, would you consider yourself an introvert? And I don't mean shy because that's not what, you know, mm -hmm. introvert means. It just means you're turned sure. inward. Would you consider yourself an introvert? Oh, 100%. Okay. I'm borderline hermit. Um, <laughs> I, I, Is that I really, why you're a prepper? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? So I'm like that. You know, like I live in a 100-year-old farmhouse on three acres of land in the middle of nowhere in the woods, and that's the way I like it. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have roommates. I live by myself, it's just me and my dog, and mm. that's just the life that I've chosen. I'm very introverted. I mean, I like people as I meet them. I like talking to people but I don't need them to feel good. And I don't really get lonely 
I really like my time by myself because all the things that I really enjoy to do are solitary activities, you know, reading and things like that. And I also, I don't like to compromise because time is too precious. Mm -hmm. You know, it's too limited. So I don't want to always have to compromise with someone else. Of like, what do you want to do? What do you want to eat? It's like, no, I'm going to do what I want, you know? Mm -hmm. And some people will say that that's selfish. I'm like, no, it's not selfish because I'm very upfront about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's why I'm alone. It's what I like. It's just, it's an absolute prerequisite of knowing me is that you have to understand. I like enormous, enormous amounts of time to myself. Yeah. I mean, it's not selfish if there's not another person involved. Yeah, <laughs> it's not like, yeah, I don't have a kid I'm neglecting or anything, yeah. but people will say that it's selfish that I don't want to have kids. I'm like, how? How is that selfish? <laughs> you know, it's like I'm not lying to anyone. I'm not, you yeah. know, like I'm not in a relationship with a woman and I'm telling her I want kids when I don't or something that would yeah. you know, be selfish. But no, I'm being very upfront about it. I don't want kids. I never have. I think you are selfishly imposing on me by telling me yeah. I should do something <laughs> right, right. that I don't want to do. <laughs> Isn't it better that I'm completely honest about it? No. Yeah. <laughs> well, so when you uh, and I mean, even if the person is extremely pleasant to be around and highly interesting at a certain point, do you just like, oh, fuck, I'm getting exhausted? Eventually. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I have some close friends that have come to visit me for days and I love it, you know, mm. and I enjoy going to conventions and meeting people and talk to people, particularly people of a like mind that like the same, you know, the horror genre as much as I do, like some of the same movies, whatever. Mm. I enjoy people. I do. But at the end of the day, I need to get away from them and mm. I need to like recharge the social battery and also just have the time to get my head clear of other people's noise mm. and work on my own stuff, like my projects, like, you know, writing is a very solitary activity mm -hmm. and you kind of need that solitude. I don't like to have any distractions, whether it be other people or a TV in the background or even the music that I love. I don't want it on because it's just another thing that will distract you from your concentration. Mm -hmm. Well, which book dramatically changed your view of what could be accomplished with the written word? Yes, I have one that immediately comes to mind, uh, right. and that's The Great and Secret Show by Clive Barker. Okay. I read that book when I was about 15, and I had already been reading Stephen King and some other horror authors, and I had actually already read Clive Barker at that point, but it was shorter works. I think I read like The Hellbound Heart. I think that would be anybody's introduction to him as a teenager, because it's the book that inspired Hellraiser, and that was a big deal you know, when I was growing up, that movie. So I had read Barker before, but this was like his magnum opus. I think the book is something like 700 pages. It's a big mm. book. And it was the biggest book I had ever read at the time. I was, you know, 15. But that book is such a mind-bending book. And it continues to be to this day, even though I've read thousands and thousands of books at this point in my life. The imagination involved in that book is so rich and so unlike anything else I'd ever read and continues to be one of the most uh, original works I've ever read. So that really opened my mind to the possibilities of fiction, how limitless it can be, that you don't need to follow tropes, that there is no perfect formula, that you, you can go completely off the rails if you want to and still tell a really good story. Awesome. So you said 15 years old? Yeah, about that, 14, 15, I think I was. So prior to that, did you have, I mean, you mentioned reading Stephen King, but was that book what kind of set you off as like, I want to be a writer or had it started before that? It started before that. Even when I was a little kid, I liked to write short stories and I would illustrate them. I have a composition book from 
I think 1986, you know, when I was a real little kid, I still have it. It's just filled with stories. And, you know, a lot of them are just, you know, my own creations. And then some of it's like fan fiction, even though I didn't even know what fan fiction was. <laughs> you know, I wrote, you know, little short stories about the Ghostbusters meeting mm. Darth Vader and shit like that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that was always with me. And I always wrote horror, even in, you know, that composition book from 86, where I was nine, eight or nine. I had stories about werewolves and axe murderers and all that kind of stuff. I was, you know, this is before Goosebumps was a thing. By the time R.L. Stein became a thing, I was already a teenager and was too old for it. But I read Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and I read the Crestwood Monster series books, and, uh, you know, all that other kind of, you know, horror stuff for young people and kids. And I was always infatuated with it. And then as I got older, it expanded. I think I read my first King book when I was about 11, I think. I very clearly remember it being The Mist that I read first. And so from there, it just became finding more horror. And as I got older, the horror became more extreme and more intense. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I think I was about 16 or so when I thought that I really wanted to do it professionally, that it's what I wanted to do with my life. I think I really realized that when I was about 16. Well, I was listening to you on the Family Fright Night Horror Podcast, and you stated that your favorite filmmaker is John Carpenter. Yep. And that he's a big influence on your writing. So what are some of the elements of his movies that you try to channel into your stories? Well, I love John Carpenter, not just as a filmmaker, but as a storyteller. You know, he wrote many of the scripts for his films. I loved what a virtuoso he was, or, you know, is. I mean, you know, he's still alive. He just doesn't really make movies anymore. Uh, now he makes excellent, excellent albums that I listen to when I'm creating my own stories. Well, like music? Um, yeah, he did the film scores to most of his films. Oh, he did geez. the music. I love he, auteurs. <laughs> yeah. And so now he and his son and another guy, they have, you know, they just go under John Carpenter by name. But, um, yeah, he's released some albums of instrumental music, and they're great. I actually saw him in concert in New York City. It was great. But yeah, going back to your question, he was able to do horror well. He was able to do action well. He was able to do comedy well. And I think that says a lot. You know, he's known as a horror director, but he really dabbled in all genres. And you can even see like the combination of them in some of his movies. The best example being Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, that movie has everything. It has monsters and kung fu fighting and comedy and action and romance. It, it has everything, you know, and I really like that. And I try to do that with some of my stuff, you know, like we were talking about some of my crime fiction that is also horror fiction. I like to combine genres that I know can work together and kind of break those expectations, I guess. I have to admit my ignorance of John Carpenter, but you've got my interest peaked because I love auteurs. I love yeah. The more they do for the movie, you know, Robert Rodriguez shot, chopped and scored right. by Robert Rodriguez or yeah, yeah. Gaspar Noe or Tarantino, you know, the guys that write, direct, edit, score. Just I love auteurs. And that was Carpenter. So but not only score as in place the score, you're saying he composed the score. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Ha Halloween, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness on and on he's just did he did the majority of his movies uh he did the music you know somebody put something out on instagram the other day it was a uh, best film poster in a certain time period 
I think. Mm. And that's what I put up was in the mouth of madness. Yeah. And I remember seeing that when I was a kid, that just terrifying. Mm. Love that. Movie. I love, love that movie mm. so much. Yeah. And that movie came out around the time I was about 16 or 17 when that came out. And I was just really starting to be like, okay, I want to be a horror author. And that movie, of course, is all about a horror author. Mm-hmm. And like what he writes ends up becoming reality. And mm-hmm. oh, I absolutely adore that movie. So that movie was very influential to me as well in wanting to be a horror writer. <laughs> yeah, great movie. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're on the subject of movies, which one of your books do you think would be best adapted for a screenplay? Uh, well, some of them I have written screenplays for, and I can't divulge too much yet but there is some stuff in development um oh shit yeah yeah but i think there's one that i feel would be a great movie because i think it has the rich characters and it also i think would be an easy movie to do because it wouldn't involve a lot of special effects or anything it's a very down-to-earth story Uh, it's called shepherd of the black sheep and it's a book that came out i don't know four years ago or something and it's not as popular as some of my other books but it's one of the books I'm most proud of. Mm-hmm. I think it's really well written, and I really like the depth of character that's in it. And the people that do read it have loved it, but it just, for whatever reason, it's just, you know, that's just how it goes. Sometimes a book will really take off, and other times a book just doesn't get the buzz that it needs to do that. But I think that one would be an excellent movie. So is this in a way you're telling us this is in development wink wink no it's not <laughs> oh, it's God not damn it no it's not we we yeah. won't find out until it's a little bit more into the process i suppose yeah i can't really reveal anything but there is some movie possibility going on all right yeah. sweet well of all your work which are you the most proud um probably gone to see the riverman because of the response that it has gotten okay it's been by far 10 times more popular than anything else I've written. And it's really helped me build a stronger fan base and has helped me be able to write full time. Mm-hmm. You know, the popularity of it, the royalties that I get from it have made it so I can support myself on just writing alone. So I'm really proud of that book. I love that so many people enjoyed it, that it disturbed so many people with its <laughs> transgressive content and that it became an enormously popular book. Well, what advice would you give to an aspiring writer? A couple of things. One thing is just be persistent. You know, continue working on it. Don't give up, even if all the feedback you get is bad. Don't give up. But keep in mind that constructive criticism is a good thing. If you just surround yourself with, you know, yes men, people are like, oh, yeah, I loved it. It was great. When that's not necessarily true, that's not helping you become a better writer. You know, it's the people that say, well, you know, I liked it, but I thought this should be changed. I thought the ending sucked. I thought this, that, you know, that's actually going to help you more. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't mean you always have to take the advice of every person that comes along because a lot of people are idiots and aren't writers and they don't know how to tell a story. (laughs) So you don't necessarily need to listen to everybody, but you need to be open to criticism. Uh, I would also say make sure to read a lot and also read outside of your interests. Read books written by people that aren't like you. If you're a white man, read books written by women and African-American people, read books by people who live in other countries than the one you live in. Get a bigger worldview that will help you write characters. Because if you don't do that, every character in your book is going to sound like you. They're going to talk like you. You know, a lot of people, and I, I consider this an enormous compliment. I've had many 
female readers tell me that I write women very well. And they asked how I did it. And I was like, well, one year I decided I really wanted to master that. And so I only read books for the whole year. I only read books written by women to really try to get into that mindset and understand women better. Mm -hmm. And also by reading fiction written by women, you get an idea of what type of fiction women want to read as well. And so I was better able to craft stories that appealed to everybody. You know? So I think that's important too, to read outside of your comfort zone. And the more you read, the more you learn as a writer. Mm -hmm. Would you include nonfiction in that as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nonfiction is going to help you come up with story ideas. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're reading, you know, books about prison or war or whatever, you know, stuff that you don't know personally, it can really inspire you. You could be reading a story and you're not necessarily going to rip off what you just read, but it can give you ideas. I was like, oh, that's really crazy that that happened. But what if this happened too? And what if it involved that? And, and you just kind of build from there. So yeah, you definitely can benefit from from reading nonfiction. Would you say there are certain things that you need to do that, you know, there's no if, ands, or buts about it? Like, say, if you're self-publishing, would you say you definitely need beta readers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, you, you absolutely need that. You want to get feedback on your story because it's very easy for you to, you know, if you're working on something for a while, you can become blind to its flaws. I also think when you're done with a rough draft, you should let it sit for a while before you let anyone look at it. You should just put it away and work on something else entirely. Usually when I finish writing a novel, I'll set it aside for at least two months and work on, you know, some other stories or whatever, and then go back to it because you go back to it with fresh eyes and you're reading it and you forget stuff that happened in your own book. You forget your own plot points and stuff. And so you're seeing it with fresh eyes and you have like a better perspective. But yeah, particularly, particularly if you're going to self-publish something, you want to you know hire an editor, you want to hire or ask people uh, to beta read. Because if you're doing everything yourself, it's very easy to release shit because <laughs> you, you know, no matter how much you edit, you're going to miss stuff because you're anticipating what the book is supposed to say because you wrote it. So you know what the sentence is supposed to mean, but you're not reading it as your reader would. You want to make sure that that it's as grammatically correct as possible, that it flows well, that you're using, you know, punctuation correctly and all of that. And you also want to make sure it's a good story. If there's a plot hole that's big enough to drive a truck through and you just didn't happen to notice it, but you end up having three beta readers all mention it, that's incredibly helpful to you. And if you had just released it on your own without anyone else's opinion, you would have released an inferior manuscript. So yeah, absolutely. Invest in that. I think some people that self-publish are just trying to cut corners. And so they end up like trying to make their own cover and they're not that great of an artist. And, you know, that definitely hurts you. People do judge books by their covers. And if your cover looks like shit, people are going to assume that the book is equally shitty. Mm. You know, so if you're trying to do everything yourself, like we were saying, an auteur is great. But if you try to be a jack of all trades, you often end up a master of none. And mm. something suffers if you're trying to do everything yourself. So, Well, this is a question I'm going to start asking everyone. Okay. What do you think about the movie Martyrs? Uh, the original French version, yes. I absolutely love. When I say the movie Martyrs, to me, the other 2015 doesn't exist. 2008, yeah. I do uh, Pascal yes. Lagier. <laughs> yeah, I feel exactly the same way. But I do like to clarify, in case someone's listening and hadn't seen Martyrs, I want to let them know to make sure that they go yeah, and get the French absolutely. one. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic movie. 
I absolutely love it. It's brutal and it's tough at times to watch. There's certain moments where you like, even I have to turn away and I've written full brutal and some of these splatterpunk award-winning novels that are really gruesome, but there is, you know, torture and other things in the movie that are very difficult to watch, but it all has a point. It's not, you know, hostile or some piece of shit like that, where it's um, just torture porn and just torture for the sake of it. There's actually a point to it. Uh, so it's redemptive, you know, because of that. And it's also just an amazing, amazing horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm you're a fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. you watch it and after a while, you're like, you start kind of feeling bad about yourself. Like, why am I sitting here just watching yeah. this yeah. like systematic abuse? But then at the yeah. end, you're like, oh, just. Yeah, yeah, Your head explodes all yeah. over the fucking wall. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great movie. Uh, there's a couple of movies like that, like the, the French extreme movement of like the the mid 2000s, where you had movies like High Tension mm-hmm. and Inside and Martyrs that were just fantastic. Yeah. So you mentioned it a little earlier, but uh, let's talk about Big Trouble in Little China because I remember watching that. I watched Saturday morning cartoons and then it came on at about like either 11 or noon on, you know, whatever, when they were still showing movies on regular television. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of how I saw it, too. I saw it on TV or like got it from the video store or something. But I definitely had it on tape, taped off of TV. I had it on tape growing up and I watched it over and over and over and over again. I absolutely loved everything about it. You know, it's funny. It has that horror element. It has tons of action, kung fu fighting. It has everything a young boy would enjoy or a young girl too. Mm. But like, really, it's like, it was everything a kid could want. And like my sister and I, like we used to play Big Trouble Little China. Mm. You know, like we would play games like, you know, where we would be the characters and stuff. And yeah, to this day, it's still my favorite movie. I've seen it. And this isn't an exaggeration. I've seen it probably close to a hundred times. I've watched mm-hmm. it so many times because I've been watching it for you know 40 years and it always entertains me, even though I could do most of the dialogue from memory. Mm-hmm. It always makes me laugh. It always makes me happy. It's my comfort movie. My favorite yeah. movie of all time. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, Lopan, my favorite character, yours. Oh yeah. You gotta love Lopan. And yeah, I was lucky enough to meet him in person. No way. And I have, uh, yeah, I have uh, yeah, uh, James Hong, and I have a, a picture of me with him, and he's like wearing the Lopan outfit and everything. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. That was a big deal for me. And then also seeing John Carpenter in concert, I saw him on his anthology tour where he was playing the themes from his movies. Oh. So I got to see him perform the theme music to Big Trouble Little China. And that was, you know, huge for me to, you know, to see that live. Oh, so, yeah, yeah awesome. definitely my favorite film. Well, Chris, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise, Vince. Thank you so much. So as we uh, bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Um, well, check out X Boogeyman, as I mentioned earlier. That's the new horror novel. And as for uh, what's next in 2023, I have two novels coming out, one of them through Cemetery Dance and the other through Grindhouse Press. There'll probably be other stuff that I release throughout the year as well, though. I'm pretty productive. So, <laughs> Awesome. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Chris, thank you again for joining me. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. 
stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. Show anyway, got so much on my own I could throw it